Hi everyone, my name is Jason. Uh, I'm one of the student ministers here at Grace Point. Uh, what a privilege it is for me to bring to you God's Word today. Uh, before we begin, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now uh, to hear from your Word. Open our eyes that we may see the riches of your Word. Uh, but most importantly, open our eyes to see Jesus. Help us to see his work of redemption, uh, the security of our salvation. Lord, may we learn how the resurrection guarantees our hope, how the ascension moves us to look upwards where Christ is, seated at God's right hand. And may we learn to cherish how Jesus now intercedes for us, prays for us. And we pray that you will grow us in our assurance of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you this question. How often do you doubt? How often do you doubt? Suppose you are a student, and there are two of you. Both of you have just enrolled, and you are meant to go to class, you're meant to study hard. But suppose the other student goes to the school office every single day, and he goes there to ask, am I really a student? Has the enrollment gone through? Has there been a mistake? And now what I want to ask is, who will get the highest marks at the end of the semester? I think we all know the answer. It's not him, for sure. But it's the one who has no doubt. When you are sure about who you are, when you don't doubt what you are to do, then you are the most assured person. And it's the same when it comes to our salvation. When a Christian is sure about his salvation, then you have an assured hope. But if a Christian is doubting, if you lack assurance, then there is something going on in your soul. And so many things can cause us to doubt, isn't there? Some of you may be doubting your salvation because your past is haunting you. And Satan keeps reminding you of those same old sins, whispering those same old accusations. Some of you are doubting because you seem lukewarm. You don't see much obedience. You don't desire God's word. You don't want to pray. You don't keep God's promises on your mind. Or some of you are doubting because you are in despair. And you struggle with ongoing sin. And you are hiding. There are some darling sins you don't want to let go of. Those sins are too sweet. You don't believe giving them up is better for you. These doubts will make us despair. They will make us fear. They will make us anxious. And church, today we are going to hear from God's word and we are going to dive deep into one verse, just one verse. Romans 8.34. You've heard that read out for us. And as we look at Romans 8.34, we will look at the resurrection, the ascension, and the intercession of Christ. We will see how all of these are instrumental to our faith and to our assurance. If you are someone struggling with doubt, then I hope today's sermon will give you more confidence. If you are assured of your salvation, then I hope God's word will strengthen your faith. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, then I pray that you'll be moved by what Jesus has done. We're going to ask three simple questions. The three questions are, how does Christ's resurrection reassure us? 
Secondly, how does Christ's ascension reassure us? And lastly, how does Christ's intercession reassure us? Resurrection, ascension, intercession. And as we expound the creed and hear from God's word today, I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you of this truth, that the depths of God's love dispel our darkest doubts. The depths of God's love dispel our darkest doubts. Before we dive into our points, I want to give us a quick context on Romans 8. Romans 8, 34 falls within a larger section of the chapter. Now, Romans 8, verse 31 to 39 is a very key section. Paul has just talked about life in the Spirit and suffering and glory in Romans 8. And as he reflects on all of this, Paul declares in verse 31, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so the main idea of this section is very clear. If God is for us, if God gave up his son, if God justified us even when we were still sinners, then who can possibly be against us? Who can possibly separate us from his love? And when we get to verse 34, Paul goes on to list more and more evidence to back this up. Truth after truth after truth. Paul is determined to make the point that nothing can separate a Christian from God's love in Christ. And today we're going to look at these truths one by one. Let's dive into it. We're now at point one. How does Christ's resurrection reassure us? And as we come to Romans 8.34, we actually encounter a verse that almost mirrors our portion of the Apostles' Creed. Let me read that out for us, Romans 8.34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You will see that Paul is asking the question, Who then is the one who condemns? You see the word there, condemns? One very common reason for us to doubt is when we think God will condemn us. When we think our sins are too many. When we think God can't possibly let us off the hook. When we think God can't possibly accept us. And more than that, it is the sins that we commit now. How can I be sure of my salvation when my life is still so filled with sin? When our hearts are weighed down by guilt, our hearts will naturally doubt our salvation. But the problem is, until we die or until Christ returns, we will continue to sin. So what assurance is there? Will we keep struggling with no hope? Paul is about to give us an answer. In Romans 8.34, when Paul is asking, who then is the one who condemns? You'll see that one possible answer is Jesus. We know Jesus is coming back to judge. What if Jesus condemns me for my sins? But when we take a step back, when we pause for a moment, when we consider who Jesus is and what he has done for us, All of our doubts will be dispelled. This is what Paul says. He says four key truths. Verse 34. Number one, Christ Jesus who died. More than that. Number two, who was raised to life. Number three, is at the right hand of God 
And number four, also interceding for us. He died. He was raised to life. He is at God's right hand. He is also interceding for us. We're going to look at these. Let's see how God addresses our doubts. Let's consider the significance of the resurrection. We know from the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. We are still in our sins. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus is key to our salvation. I remember a few years ago, I did Strand 3 at NTE, and the topic was on the resurrection. We collected so many Bible verses from around the Bible, and it really surprised us how often the Bible talks about it, and how much it stands out in so many Gospel summaries. In our church, we often talk about the death of Jesus, but the resurrection is also really key. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4 for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus raised on the third day is part of what Paul would consider to be of first importance. And church, we know this. We all know how important the resurrection is. But so often there is a disconnect, a disconnect between our heads and our hearts, a disconnect between our doctrine and our experience. We know we should believe this. We know we should be sure. But sometimes the same doubts creep in when Satan keeps on reminding you of those old sins. And at that moment, no matter how much theology you know, you are still going to doubt. It's like with your student debts. Anyone here still have hex debt? Yes, yes, show of hands up the front. Well, I do, and uh, I'm about to rack up more from Bible college. <laughs> and some of us are so diligent, we've been out of uni for so long, like decades, uh, not going to name names, right? You've been uh, out of uni, you've paid off your student debts. But once in a while, you might get a text from MyGov. You might get an email from the ATO, and ooh, you jump straight to the website to double-check, oh, have I paid off my hex? Even though you know in your mind that all your debts have been paid for, those notifications, those emails still make you do a double-take. Just like that, when those same doubts creep in, when Satan keeps reminding you of those old sins, at that moment... No matter how many times we have sung, Christ He lives, Christ He lives, you are still going to doubt. But church, the accusations of Satan will not prevail. The lingering doubts in your head will not overcome you. The truths of God's word haven't changed. Your feelings might have changed. Your heart might be anxious. But the truths of God's word are still rock solid. Church, the resurrection is God's mighty proclamation that our Lord Jesus has conquered death. He has defeated the grave. He has overcome hell. Satan will come, try to shake us, 
Satan will bring the same old charges again and again. But it is the resurrection that leads us to say with Paul, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Today, if you are here and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, this is God's call to you. The Bible is really clear. Jesus has conquered sin and grave. That if you trust in Him, no matter how many sins you have committed in the past, even you can share in His life. Or, if you are someone weighed down by your past, weighed down by your guilt, then hear this. Jesus really paid it all. He did. And so when Paul asks in Romans 8.34, Who is the one who condemns? Is it Christ Jesus who died, who was raised to life? Is he the one to condemn you? No way. Jesus died for you. Jesus conquered death for you. There is no way Jesus will come back to condemn us. And so to answer the question, how does Christ's resurrection reassure us? The resurrection means our sin and death are conquered. The resurrection means our sin and death are conquered. And the depths of God's love dispel our deepest doubts. And so that was the resurrection. We now go to another doctrine. This one might be less familiar to us. We're now at point two. How does Christ's ascension reassure us? In Romans 8.34, it reads, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. At the right hand of God. Well, you see, Jesus was raised back to life, back to earth. And so him being at the right hand of God is an allusion to his ascension. We read this at the end of Luke, Luke 24, verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Or in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And we often forget this part of the Gospels, don't we? And for the Apostles' Creed to include this truth, it means it is very significant for us. If you haven't noticed it before, the works of Christ cannot be complete without the ascension. The works of Christ on earth cannot be complete without the ascension. And what I mean is this. Notice the trajectory of the creed. Where does the creed begin? We see that it begins in, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We start with our Father in heaven. And then the creed introduces Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And Jesus was eternally with the Father in the beginning. And notice the trajectory of the next few lines. Follow my hand here, actually. If you're looking down, it's time to look up. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Notice this. And for those of you who love maths, the life of Jesus looks a bit like a parabola, doesn't it? Y equals X squared. And the reason why the creed describes Jesus like this is because it is a faithful summary of the Gospels. And so we can't forget the ascension. The works of Jesus on earth cannot be complete without the ascension. The ascension is significant to us and for our assurance because it fulfills the picture of Jesus as our great high priest. Those of us who are familiar with the Old Testament will remember that in the temple, there was the holy place, and there was the most holy place. And the Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place, and it signified the presence of God amongst His people. When we come to Hebrews chapter 9, we will turn there in a moment, Hebrews 9, we see a more complete picture of Jesus, our great high priest. Turn with me to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, verse 7. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The high priest, back in Old Testament times, took on the people's sins once a year. And the people would know whether God had accepted their sacrifice when the high priest would finish his work and he would come back out. That's when they knew their sins were covered. That's when they knew God would continue to bless them as His people. But the writer of Hebrews is very clear that in the Old Testament, the high priest going in once a year is not it. Hebrews 9 verse 9 is clear. The sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. But what the high priests were unable to do Jesus was able to accomplish. You see, the Old Testament temple was a picture of God's heavenly throne room. And the ascension of Jesus, our great high priest, entering the most holy place is to accomplish our redemption. We continue to see this in the next chapter. Hebrews 10 verse 11. Read Hebrews 10 verse 11 to 14 with me. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus' work as our great high priest was final and complete. And only when his work is finished, only then can he sit at God's right hand in glory. It means God has accepted his sacrifice and Jesus can sit at God's right hand. And this is so good, isn't it? That Jesus' work is final, is complete. But sometimes when we look at our lives, we don't see evidences of that. 
Sometimes we hear of a great truth, like Jesus seated at God's right hand, reigning as king, his works of redemption final and complete. But our hearts are not warmed. Our hearts are cold towards God. We have no desire for God's word. We don't want to pray. We have no affections towards God's many promises. Church, let me encourage you with this word from a Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter. In his book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, Baxter says this, A heavenly mind is the best way to a life of comfort. The countries far north are cold and frozen because they are distant from the sun. What makes such frozen, uncomfortable Christians but they're living so far from heaven? And what makes, makes others so warm but they're living higher and having nearer access to God? When the sun in the spring draws nearer to the earth, the earth looks green, the trees shoot forth, the birds sing and all things smile upon us. If we would but try this life with God and keep our hearts above, what a spring of joy would be within us. How we would forget our winter sorrows and how we would praise our great creator. Oh Christian, get above. Those who have been there have found it warmer. That's a powerful analogy, isn't it? Those are not just a man's words. Colossians 3 says similar things. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. O oh, Christian, get above. When you feel helpless, when your walk with God feels dry, when you feel tired, when you are tired of constantly trying to get near to God, look upward. Look upward to Christ, seated at the right hand of God. By your union with Christ, you are there with Him. Meditate. Meditate on Colossians 3, 1-4. We taste things better when they are chewed, not when they are swallowed whole. So meditate on God's word. Look to him for our spiritual vitality. So coming back to Romans 8, 34, as Paul is asking, who is the one who condemns? Is it Christ Jesus who sits at God's right hand? No, no. Jesus sitting at God's right hand means his work of redemption is final and complete. And if God is pleased to accept his sacrifice, it must mean it is a complete work that cannot fail. There is no way he will come back to condemn us. The depths of God's love dispel our darkest doubts. And it's because Christ has come down to the deepest depths and he has risen to the highest heights. And so to answer the question, how does Christ's ascension reassure us? Going with our maths theme here, ascension equals redemption complete. Ascension equals redemption complete. Remember point one, resurrection equals sin and death conquered. Ascension 
equals redemption complete. So that was the ascension. We're now up to our final point. How does Christ's intercession reassure us? We have seen how Christ is sitting at God's right hand. And if the work of redemption is final and complete, we might be wondering now, what is Christ doing now? And the answer lies in the final part of Romans 8.34. Romans 8.34, it reads, Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now you might be wondering, what does interceding mean? What does intercession mean? It means praying to God on our behalf. Christ is pleading to God for us. And why does Paul say this? It's because Paul is being a pastor to the people. He knows that even if you learn all of these key doctrines, there will always be people who say, I know this is great, I have believed in Christ, but what if I fall into sin again? Does my sin undo everything that Christ has done for me? All of Christ's works seem to be in the past. The cross was 2,000 years ago. What if I sin now? And we must return to the book of Hebrews. Come with me to Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. We read from verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Pay close attention to verse 25. Verse 25 says, Christ is able to save completely. In other translations, it reads entirely, perfectly, or to the uttermost. Well, why is Christ able to save entirely? Because of what comes next, the end of verse 25. Because he always lives to intercede for them. One commentator put it this way, Christ continues to secure for his people the benefits of his death. Christ continues to secure for his people the benefits of his death. We looked at this before. In the Old Testament, the high priest must make sacrifices year after year. But Jesus has done it once for all. And so, when Christians sin now, we all know we still do, there isn't a heavenly courtroom where the devil brings his accusations and Christ has to present his sacrifice again and again. No. This, this was written for the benefit of the believer. For our benefit. The people of Israel knew their sins were forgiven when the high priest came out. And so also, Christians, we know our sins are forgiven and will continue to be forgiven when we know that Christ continues to intercede for us. He continues to intercede for us. This means we can approach God boldly. Hebrews 4.16 Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus at the right hand of God is a guarantee that we can find mercy. 
is not a throne of judgment, but it is a throne of grace. We can enter God's presence with assurance. We can come to Him with boldness. And so again, we come back to Romans 8.34. And as Paul is asking, who is the one who condemns? Will anyone condemn us for the sins we commit now? No. Jesus is interceding for us. There is no way he will come back to condemn us. Famous preacher in the 1800s said this, Robert Merrick McShane, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. To know that Christ is interceding for us right now is a great comfort to the Christian. And so to answer the question, how does Christ's intercession reassure us? Going with our maths theme again, intercession equals continual assurance. Intercession equals continual assurance. Remember, resurrection equals sin and death conquered. Ascension equals redemption complete. And now intercession equals continual assurance. The depths of God's love dispel our darkest doubts. Let us come to some final implications. Church, we have looked at the resurrection, the ascension, and the intercession. Let me ask you this. After hearing what God is saying to you through His Word, are you still unsure? Are you still doubting? Are God's promises not enough? If you're someone who is struggling with habitual sin, you can't seem to shake off your old habits. And because of that, you are doubting whether you are a true Christian. Yes, the Westminster Confession of Faith does say, a true believer can lose their assurance if you neglect to preserve it. That is, if you are lazy with your walk with God, or if you fall into some special sin. So in fact, you can lose your assurance for a time. There can be other reasons, but notice these two are our fault. When we neglect God, when we fall into sin, and so we should examine ourselves. If you are doubting, Examine your life. Are you neglecting your walk with God? If you are doubting, examine your life. Are you falling into sin? When we examine ourselves, maybe the reason why we are doubting will show itself very clearly. In fact, some of you are so assured when you really shouldn't be. You are so sure you are saved, but... If you were to examine your life, if you were to ask a fellow believer, if someone else had unhindered insight into your life, would they agree with you that you are saved? Or are you living a life of sin, not pleasing in God's sight? But church, whether you are a broken and contrite sinner, or whether you are a proud and ignorant sinner, refusing to admit your sins, Hear God's word to you. Approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Come to Him in prayer. 
come to him in repentance. God promises he will never drive you away. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus said, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. No matter how far you've gone, look to him. You will find mercy. You will find forgiveness. You will find life. Church, hear God's word to you today. The depths of God's love dispel our darkest doubts. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for our salvation. We praise you for the resurrection. We can be sure Jesus really paid it all. We praise you for the ascension. We can get above where Christ is, seated at God's right hand. And we praise you for Jesus interceding for us. If he is praying for us, we really have nothing to fear. We pray that we will examine ourselves. We pray that we will cast ourselves to Christ. Please grow us in our assurance. Please help us to live a godly life for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.